Okay, fellow students, if you would be so kind to open to Ecclesiastes 5, we're going to carry on where we picked up or left off last week. Last week we talked about God's timing in Ecclesiastes 3. Today we're going to talk about wealth and worship, among other things. Um, Solomon, remember, wrote this book right near the end of his life. He was probably 58 to 59. He died about 60. He had written the Song of Solomon when he was young and in love, probably in his early 20s, and he had written Proverbs in middle age, probably around 40 to 45. So this is Solomon's retrospect. It's his diary, his journal, and he's looking back over his life, and he's got almost 40 years as king, and he's made a number of brilliant decisions, and he's made a number of brilliantly foolish decisions, quite a number of them. And he's looking back over his life, and he's kind of giving you some human perspective. Remember that Ecclesiastes is written from a human point of view. So he's saying from the horizontal point of view, when you hear the phrase under the sun, he basically says apart from God's perspective, apart from divine revelation, if you look with your two eyes and hear with your two ears from a human perspective, here's what I'm seeing. And what you're going to find out, it's, some of that's not all that wonderful. He's now going to talk about wealth and he's going to talk about worship. So let's dive into chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to escuche, to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. He's basically saying, what do you go to the house of God for? It's good to see you, Rick. What do you go to the house of God for? What's the purpose? Why are you here today? To worship. To worship. So he says, if you're going to go to worship, I'll give you a guideline for worship. And the overarching guideline for worship is you have one mouth and two ears, so you should listen to at least twice as much as you speak. In my case, it should probably be ten times, right? Literally. It would be, probably be good. So some guidelines. Now, what does it mean when he says guard your steps? Everybody on an airplane, you get off an airplane, and the uh, flight attendant says, thank you for flying with us, and watch your step. That means there's potential danger ahead. You need to pay attention. You need to be conscious when you're going off the airplane or when you get on a, an escalator. There's usually a sign that says, watch your step, because if you don't pay attention, bad things could happen. How many of you ran your mouth as a kid? As an adult, okay, we're into that, yeah, yeah. There ain't no problem at all, we do that all the time. But how many of you ever had your parents say, watch your step, young man, young woman, right? What are they saying? Yeah, son, sitting next to mom, yeah, yeah. It means pay attention, potential dangers ahead, right? Potential dangers ahead. So Solomon says, when you're going to worship, Pay attention. By the way, the best preparation for worship is obedience beforehand. That's pretty good. That's a form of worship. Good point, John. But obedience before you get there. As King Saul found out, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's interesting. <clears throat> Has it ever occurred to you that entering God's house is not necessarily a risk-free activity? Interesting. One day a year, the high priest of Israel was obligated to go into the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle, to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation. That was the Day of Atonement. 
Yom Kippur, we call it today. Yom meaning day. When the high priest went in, there was elaborate preparation, personal preparation for cleansing of sin of the priests so that the priest was qualified to offer sins on behalf of the people. Interestingly enough, when you read the attire the priest wore, they had this long robe, and at the hem of the robe all the way around, they were required to sew bells on the robe. The purpose of the bells was to ensure that as the priest was moving, they were tinkling so that they knew he was alive. Because the Holy of Holies was the very presence of God. It was the point in Israel's history where God came down and met with man in the Holy of Holies. Entering the Holy of Holies once a year was not a risk-free activity. They actually tied a rope around their ankle, around the high priest's ankle. So in case God struck you dead, they could pull the corpse out because no one was going to go in after him. Now, we tend to take worship um, a little more casually. And I would say that our casual culture treats God with a tremendous degree of casualness. And frame number one says, casual worship can lead to casualties. Be careful. Don't enter the house of God to worship without thought. Right? Do you know what amusement means when you go to an amusement park? Amusement literally means without thought. Uh, mean negative. Muse is for brain, right? Work, muse. You mused on something. Amusement means without thought. The sanctuary of God is not an amusement park. You should go to worship, hopefully, with intention and attention, paying attention. Leviticus 10 gives you an example of, of uh, disobedient casual worship. Aaron is the high priest. He has four sons. Nadab and Abihu are the two oldest. And it says in Leviticus 10, remember that when they worshipped God, God gave them explicit, exacting instructions about how to do this. And what they did is they took fire for the sacrifice from an unauthorized source. Remember, the fire that they were used to sacrifice had originally been sent from heaven. Fire of God came down and lit that altar, and that was a perpetual fire, and they were to take that fire when they were to perform the burnt offerings. And they took fire from another source in explicit disobedience. And there was also a very strong hint they might have been drinking, because immediately following it, there was a prohibition against drinking when you were worshiping. Would you think drinking and worshiping would probably be something that you should separate? Why? Yeah, you could ask the Corinthians. They would have some things to say. Pardon? Not respectful. Why else? It dulls your brain. You're putting your brain cells to sleep, and most of us don't have any to spare. I mean, come on. You know. When you worship, it should take every bit of brain cells that we have. We should be paying full attention. So God struck the two dead. And you go, whoa, this worship thing is not a risk-free operation. You're right. You are entering into God's holy presence. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What do you know about Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. They lied to God himself. And what happened? They died. So I would submit to you that we do come to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus the Son, the perfect intermediary for sinful man. 
but we should come with a tremendous sense of awe and respect and worship and attention. It is terribly easy to sit in that service or stand in that service and sing the songs and your mouth is working and your heart is not turned on. Right? I have done that. And you have too. I've watched some of you. <laughs> I'm telling you. You know, you, it's pretty tough to worship and surf the web at the same time. Right? I mean, it, it doesn't work too well. So beware casualness. And Solomon says, pay attention when you go into the house of the Lord and listen more than you speak. Now, God commands us how to worship. And I'm going to give you two cross-references. The first one is Leviticus 15, 31. For those of you that are checking, Leviticus 15, 31. God tells the sons of Israel, Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel, this is through Moses, separated from their uncleanness lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. So a holy God will not be contaminated with sin, correct? Or unholiness. He will not tolerate it. For you and I to commune with God, to enter his presence and fellowship with him, we must absolutely be cleansed. Say yes? yes. From sin. Jesus the Son does that cleansing ongoing basis the blood of jesus christ in the greek says keeps on cleansing keeps on cleansing keeps on cleansing you know why that's important because we keep on sinning keep on sinning so the blood needs to continue to cleanse john 4 24 jesus is having a little conversation with the samaritan woman at the well and what does he say he says god is spirit and those who worship god must worship him how in spirit and in truth, <clears throat> spirit means worship with a proper internal heart attitude. He's talking about the human spirit here, right? We already have the Holy Spirit. So make sure your heart attitude is right when you're worshiping. And he says, furthermore, worship in truth, which means worship consistent with the revealed word of God. Do we have truth? Yes. The spirit of truth lives in your heart and you have the written word of God truth in your lap. We do not need to wonder how to worship. We do not need to wonder who to worship. It's written down for us, right? Okay, verse 1b. It says, guard your steps, number one, and when you come, draw near to listen. The word listen there is, it conveys an intent to obey. In other words, God wants us to hear from him so that we can obey him. Hearing too little from God usually results from talking too much ourselves, right? Have you ever had anybody in your life that they just couldn't shut them up? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure some, I'm sure some of you are saying, Brad, that's you. But I mean, uh, they, they, they just... Okay, for lack of a better word, you didn't hear this from me, but they suffer from the, from the disease of verbal diarrhea. I, I mean, it creates a mess with their mouth. There's just words, 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 words. And God is saying here, I have a question for you. If you have not heard from God during worship, have you really worshiped? Or is the reason you come to church so that God can hear from you? 
when we measure the ratio of the time we're talking at God and we're listening to him, sometimes I wonder if in reality we come to church to tell him what's on our mind. As opposed to saying, Lord, what do you have to speak to me? I'm not saying you should not share your heart with the Lord. But I would suspect most of us would do better to listen first. So then when we had something to say, we would have something to say that had value at that point in time. He says, if you draw near to listen, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen. Rather, in contrast, don't offer the sacrifice of fools, but they do not, for they do not know they are doing evil. Warren Wiersbe says, bringing a sacrificial offering to God in your hands without an obedient faith in your heart becomes a sacrifice of fools because only a fool thinks he can deceive God. Does God know our heart? When you are singing, does God know whether you mean it or you're just on autopilot? He knows. He knows. By the way, most of the time we know too, right? Verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Consequently, let your words be few. Think about what you're going to say before you open your mouth. You know, if you had an op... Boy... We could spend a lot of time on that statement, yeah. <clears throat> we probably better not because I'm going to get under full conviction here. If, if, if you had an opportunity to go to the White House and present a request for a course of action, right? You're going to meet with some official and you're going you're to make a recommendation uh, and try and persuade them uh, that a particular course of action should be taken. Would you prepare? Would you prepare carefully? And would you behave appropriately? And you are now going into the presence of God, right? Would it be a good idea to prepare before we get there? When I listen to some of us pray, including myself, there are times I waltz into God's presence with my flip-flops and my shorts on, and I didn't bother taking a shower. Because after all, he's just dad. Right? He is your dad. He is your heavenly father. So we've got two sides here. One, he says, draw near to the throne of grace that you might find grace to help because you have an intermediary. But he still is God. He still is holy God. It is a privilege to be invited into his presence through the blood of Jesus. It is not our right. Correct? We are adopted sons and daughters, and he says, come, but we come because of the work Jesus did, not because inherently we are righteous people. The righteous we have is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Solomon says, what you say to God is predicated by who he is, the sovereign God, and where he is, right? And where he is is in heaven, outside space and time in infinite, it's also predicated by who I am, right? And who are we? We are sinful, fallen, praise God, redeemed people, right? And we are where? 
on earth. He says, don't forget who you are and don't forget who he is when you have this conversation. Make sense? We are not just small in relationship to God. By way of perspective, we're insignificant. You know, we live on an average-sized planet in a reasonably small solar system, in an average-sized galaxy, in a finite universe that was created by God ex nihilo by fiat. He spoke it into being. And if you've ever done any work on astronomy at all, you realize that this universe is a big place. And yet compared to infinite God, it's nothing. This is the God who we go to worship. This is the God we have a relationship with. Verse 3, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. You know, he says, look, hard work produces sleep and dreams in exactly the same way a fool produces many words. In many words comes the opportunity for much sin with the tongue. What did James say about the tongue? It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. No one can tame the tongue apart from the Holy Spirit, right? Brad Hannock has trouble taming the tongue with the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes? Say yes, you know I do. Charles Spurgeon said, it's not the length of our prayers, but the strength of our prayers that makes the difference. And I think my point on the board is, prayer should be like perfume. Pay attention when applying. Right? Too much perfume makes a sweet thing stink. Yes? Too much perfume results from a lack of discernment, right? And a lack of attention. Too many words in praying, I think, many times means we're not thinking about what we're saying. We're just talking. Now, the Lord says, come, 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 talk. I want to hear from you, and I want you to hear from me. But I'm very convinced that sometimes more words means less thought. And Solomon says, therefore, let your words be few. That doesn't necessarily mean I can't speak to God. It means, am I thinking about what I'm saying before I say it? Based on who he is and based on who I am. Okay? It's fascinating that um, sinning with the tongue is... Um, fairly easy to do. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. I'm going to give you two examples. If we don't think before we speak, we can dig a fairly deep hole with our mouth, right? Say yes. Some of you are still digging out, I know. Judges 11, verse 30 to 4, there was a, this is the period of Israel's dark age is about 350 years between um, uh, uh, the, 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 the monarchy and the, and the period of Joshua. <clears throat> Jephthah happens to be a judge in Israel. And he has a battle coming up with the nation of Ammon. And he's a little concerned about this battle, so he does a deal with God. He makes a promise to God. And he says, God, if you give me victory over the Ammonites... I promise you I will sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house to see me after the victory. 
What would you think about that promise? It's a promise with enormous consequences over which he has no control. He doesn't know who's going to come out. He might think it's his mule. Turns out it was his daughter. His only daughter, his only child. And when you read the end of that chapter, you find out with that with her full consent, verse 36 to 39, he kept his vow to the Lord. I would think Jephthah was pretty careful with his words after that. How many of you have made promises to God or somebody else that later on you said, you know, I wished I hadn't said that. You know, his tongue made promises that his daughter had to pay for with her life. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Solomon here assumes that at some time most of us will make promises to God. A vow is a promise, right? So Solemn Covenant says, I will do A, B, C, X, Y, Z. The key is to make sure that you keep your promises to God, but you keep them when? When does it say you're supposed to keep them? In a timely fashion. In other words, God, I promise you I will do blah, 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 and you haven't done anything about it in five years. What would you presume God would assume about your promise? You're probably not going to keep it. Haven't done anything about it in five years, right? Solomon says, failing to pay your vows on time makes you a liar. And how does God view liars? What does he say in verse 4? It makes you a liar and a fool, and it says God is angry with fools and liars. Now, do we make promises to God? Do we make promises to our spouse? I know at one time you did, right? The first lie you told was on the first date. You were lying long before you said, I do, right? Dating is all about misrepresentation. You understand that. <laughs> Come on, you all dress up and, you know, put your best foot forward and actually brush your teeth, I mean, a couple times a day. Come on. Go to the gym, lose that rubber tire, right? He says we all make promises. We make promises to our employer, we make promises to our employees. Unfortunately, humans are very, very good at promise breaking. And we're very good at rationalizing why we didn't keep that promise, aren't we? There's always a reason. I'm amazed that Jephthah didn't, you know, not keep the promise. It says he did, which is interesting. So the question is, do we keep our promises and do we keep them on time? Because it says, God takes no delight in fools. What does that mean? It says, God doesn't take delight. What, is, what would that imply? Pardon? Yeah, he's not thinking favorably, right? He's not happy with the fact that we are promise breakers. He wants us to be promise keepers, Faye. Often, it's a bribe. We're saying, Lord, we, will, we promise we'll do this if you will do that. Right. It's Monty, who is it, Monty Hall? Let's make a deal. Is that what it is? God, if you do this, what I really want, then I promise to do that. 
and at the time were usually desperate. The problem is, is God bribable? No. Does sometimes he give you what you beg for? And then he's going to show you what you're made of when it's come time for the other side of the deal, right? See, promise breaking is both stealing and lying. Because when you make promises, you owe your promises. You owe your promises. God says, be careful when you promise, because once you promise, you're obligated. Is God a promise maker? Is God a promise keeper? We should be like him. Be holy, for I am holy. You make you keep your promise, God keeps his word. Verse 5, Solomon says, It's better you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Key thought is, don't promise it if you won't pay it. Here's what my daddy used to tell me. Don't let your mouth write checks your behavior can't cover. I bounced a lot of checks. Don't let your mouth write checks your behavior can't cover, or don't let your mouth dig a hole that you can't get out of, right? Count the cost. Is there a scripture that talks about counting the cost? Count the cost of remodeling your kitchen before you demolish it. <laughs> you might be eating out of paper plates for years, right? Count the cost of marrying that person before you say, I do. Because you will pay the cost after you marry. Let's hear an amen. Come on. Amen. Now, it can be a good cost. You can marry the right person. Right? But count the cost. Count the cost. Don't make the vow if you haven't thought about the cost because you're obligated. Best example of vowing and not paying or an example. 1 Samuel 14. <coughs> 1 Samuel 14, 39 to 45. Saul is in a battle with the Philistines, and Saul had a habit of running his mouth at the wrong time, and he publicly vows and puts a curse on anybody who eats food in the middle of this battle. He says, cursed is anyone who eats food until we finish this battle. Unfortunately, his son Jonathan didn't hear him put the curse and make the promise. So he's chasing after the Philistines, and he sees some honey, and he eats the honey. And he gets energy, and he leads them to a great victory. Of course, fighting when famished usually doesn't lead to a great... I mean, you need energy to do a battle, right? So it was a foolish vow on, on Saul's part. So Saul says, he doesn't know, but he knows somebody's eaten. And he says, whoever is eaten against my vow is going to die, even if it's Jonathan, my son. Turns out it was Jonathan, his son. Saul didn't keep his promise. The people talked him out of it. How would you evaluate someone who promises and then doesn't keep their word? What's your assessment? Not trustworthy. What else? Lazy. What else? Liar. Rash. Yeah. No, it's true. We all do. I, I'm going to substitute a word for you. Convenient. A lot of important things in life are not convenient. But if you change your tune to fit the circumstances, people say, I can't trust your word. 
If any time you talk, someone says, cut it in half and cut it in half again, you get close to the truth. Marin hammered me the first two years of our marriage because I suffered from the sin of exaggeration. And exaggeration is lying. She would call me on it. She'd say, how many? And I'd say, 50. She'd say, how many? And I'd say, uh, eight. <laughs> you think, Brad, that's a little exaggeration? Liar, liar, pants on fire. Do you know what we call rash speaking in today's culture? Trash talking. When you listen to what people run their mouth on on public television or on streaming live and it's recorded, it should scare you. What comes out of their mouth? Mark. All you have to do is say, I misspoke. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they say. Or you just spinning. <laughs> yeah, you change, you change the vernacular, you know. It's not lying, it's just, it's, it's you know. Puffery, as they say in the advertising industry. My vacuum cleaner is the greatest in the world. Puffery. Okay, verse 6. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God, at that arrow that meant the Levitical priest, that, is, that it was a mistake. You know, spinning, misspeaking. I misspoke. Yeah, right. It's a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now remember, vows are voluntary, but once made... They're binding. Jesus said that we are going to be held accountable for every single careless word that we speak. Man, am I glad for the blood of Jesus to cover my sins and my words, and you should be too. All right, verse 10. He's talking about worship. Now he's going to talk about wealth and the interconnectivity. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Here's the principle. The more I have, the more I want. The myth is wealth brings satisfaction. Actually, I should probably scratch myth and put lie because it's a lie from hell. The truth is money is a neutral entity. It's neither good nor bad. Money is never the problem. It's our heart that's the problem. It's our attitude towards money. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Have you ever noticed that money makes a lousy lover? If you fall in love with money, you're going to find out she's cheating. And money's a liar. Because money says if you get enough of this cotton linen stuff with dead president's pictures on it, it will satisfy your soul. Is that true? It's a lie. It's a lie. You don't have to look around far, right? How much money is enough? Just a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more. Do you know what that sounds like? An addiction. Have you ever met an addict who had enough of anything, right? What's, what's by definition an addict? Someone who must have more of the same thing. Einstein said doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is a definition of insanity. So we sin and it doesn't satisfy. And what do we do tomorrow? More of the same. You know who's the most insane person in the universe is Satan. He actually believes the lie himself. I mean, he's the most deluded creature in the universe by far. 
addiction is always, well, I, I guess I would say idolatry. Love of money is both addiction and idolatry because, you know, I don't know how the Holy Spirit works as Gary was talking about this this morning. Andrew spoke on this this morning for those of you that didn't hear him. Is that guy good or what, huh? Hey, he's maturing up extremely well. I'm so proud of him. He's a fabulous teacher. More is never the solution, folks. Contentment is the solution. And contentment is whatever God chooses to provide. Have you ever been content with what God chose to provide? Uh... In theory and then in practice not been? God, I'll, I'll, whatever you choose to answer this prayer with is fine by me. It really is. Until he answers it. And then it's, God, I asked for A and you gave me B or C. Or you got A and then didn't like it in six months. Most people, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dan's comment was, when you, when, you, when you make money, you believe the lie that you're the one that's responsible for it. And your heart rate and your brain wave to get out of bed the next morning to go do the job came from you? No, it's a blessing from God, right? Here's the, here's the principle. What you truly love, you will always want more of. Whatever you truly love, write it down. Don't look at me like that. Write it down. Whatever you truly love, you will always want more of. If you love God, you will want more of God, right? If you love money, you will want more money. If you love sex, you will want more sex. If you want friendship, you will want more friendship. If you want fame, you love fame, you will want more of it. Whatever you love, you will pursue. Here's the point. Only God satisfies. You will seek all these things, but... Rob, you got that grin on your face. I know there's a comment over there. You will, you, go ahead. Okay, all right. <laughs> Only God is enough. Only God is enough. Nothing else will satisfy. And he says, how do we know that? Go to verse 11. He says, you think money's going to satisfy? You think money is going to fulfill you? Verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on in despair? The principle, the more I have, the more I spend. The myth is, or the lie is, that wealth solves all problems. Have you ever noticed that money attracts many people who, who will help you with it? <laughs> you need help, right? There's an old line I got from Warren Wiersbe, the more loot you get, the more looters show up. <laughs> You're related to some of those looters, right? You got relatives, right? Money attracts parasites and leeches as well as the many people required to manage your wealth, right? I mean, you got brokers and bankers and consultants and, and accountants and insurance agents and real estate agents. And then when you get to be really rich and famous, you need bodyguards and, you know, security systems in your house and all this other stuff. Have you ever noticed that the, the problems you think money solves, it creates a whole nother class of problems? It's interesting that when we don't have money, we think that if we have money, that will fix it. And we get money, we go, now I've got a whole nother set of responsibilities. And if you don't take it seriously, what happens to a fool and their money? It's soon parted. That's why people that win lotteries, 
or medical settlements usually are broke 80 to 90 percent of within five years about 60 months it's about how long it takes for the money to walk away by the way here's a little word for you who are leaving wealth to your children or your grandchildren leave them wisdom before you leave them wealth if you don't leave them wisdom and you just leave them wealth they are fools and what will happen to the wealth and a fool it will be mishandled without a doubt so at one point in time Bruce Willis and Demi Moore had an entourage of 23 people in their house to take care of all their stuff 23 23 yeah telling them they're wonderful as long as they're wealthy and then when they're not wealthy those 23 people go away okay wealth will make your life more complicated that I promise you verse 12 the sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats much or little but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep here's the principle the more you have the more you'll worry right the more stuff you have the more you'll worry and the myth is is that wealth will bring you peace of mind you begin by owning stuff right and if you have enough stuff here's the problem the stuff can wind up owning you I have a couple I know um, all I'm gonna say is they live in the lower 48 and uh, they have been enormously blessed they're enormously hard-working and they own multiple houses multiple houses multiple states and their very very largest house is now um, inconvenient for them since it's too far away from a major metropolitan area and they need to be in a major metropolitan area for health reasons but they really can't sell this mansion because it's too far away so now they have to build a four or five bedroom um, servants quarters or whatever you want to call it for the person they're going to hire to watch their big house while they buy another one in town near the medical system to take care of the medical problems and you're thinking this is this is working this is you know it's like when we own stuff you know what we spend money on maintaining the stuff I'm not saying stuff is bad but I'm saying balance no no stuff is stuff stuff is stuff how much you and the Lord got to figure that out we spend more time planning on how to get more stuff or just protecting the stuff we now have right wealth does not produce peace it usually produces anxiety because when you have lots of stuff you have lots of responsibilities to think about and stress usually produces insomnia so we spend money on Lunesta or whatever your drug of preference is right the pharmaceutical industry does great business with wealthy Americans because we really think that if we take a pill we can solve the problem temporary temporary by the way I'm a big believer in sleep but I think there's other solutions for that the disease that we may have in this country is the dread disease affluenza <laughs> affluenza too much affluence not always good for the soul verse 13 there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the Sun riches being hoarded by the owner to his own hurt when those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son there was nothing to support him here's the principle the more we have the more we hoard and the myth is that wealth produces security 
So he, he says, look, guy's got a lot of money. He hoards the money, and he's miserable with the money. Have you ever noticed that misers are miserable? I didn't do a word study on that, but I bet they come from the same root. Miser, miserable, right? Okay. So there's an old proverb that says, he, he who has no money is poor. He who has nothing but money is even poorer. He who has no money is poor. He who has nothing but money is even poor, right? Hoarding is always based on idolatry and fear because greed produces amnesia to the needs of the poor. You know what else greed does? Greed produces amnesia regarding your need for God. Because those with a great deal of wealth believe they don't need God because somewhere they think they're never going to die. You ever had a conversation with someone they're convinced they're never going to die? I mean, you try and talk about eternity, and what do they say? Manana, right? Manana? I'll think about it when? Tomorrow. tomorrow. And you're going, well, one of these days, there's no tomorrow on your calendar. I mean, there, there, there's, this is the day. That's one of the Solomon's points, is that it's terribly easy to be deluded and to think if you have money, it's going to satisfy your soul. And he said, no, those who hoard... Those who hoard are miserable. And he said, by the way, those who hoard and think money is going to solve their problems can lose it all. Right? And he gives you an example. He says what? A bad investment. Let me tell you, how, how could a hoarder lose all their money? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was worth millions and he's worth nothing because his friends helped him invest it. What are some other ways you could lose all your wealth? Pardon, your mattress burns. Okay, that's, yeah, that's good. We'll come to your house, right? <laughs> Barbecue in the bedroom, not a good plan. You know, not a good plan. How about, um, how about a catastrophic illness? How about a half a dozen years in a long-term care facility? Right? I mean, there's a lot of ways you can spend all your money on stuff. There's an old proverb that says in god we trust all others pay cash you didn't get that did you okay you know one time we really believed that you know the coin that says in god we trust they put that on there because the tendency is to trust in the mammon that's money so they put in god we trust on the money to remind us that your trust is in God, not in this little copper-clad zinc piece of metal that they put a little fake silver thing on, you know, a little covering, and you think that's really valuable. Come on. We know that. Just read in the, well, I can't remember where I read it, but within the last two weeks, South America went from $15 billion to bankruptcy in 12 months. You can lose it all pretty much any time. Right? So don't put your confidence in money. And he gives you kind of the end of the line here, verse 15. He says, As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Here's the principle. The more you have, the more you'll leave. Right? 
I mean, this is not comfortable, but it's logical. Don't put your trust in money because it's not permanent. How much money did the eldest Rockefeller leave? How much are you going to leave? All of it, right? We're all going to leave it. You can look in the Pharaoh's tombs. You know, the Pharaoh's tombs, they, they elaborate uh, uh, prov providence and provision for the Pharaoh so they have all this stuff and servants and foodstuffs in, in their next life, you know. Go down the river sticks. When you go to those tombs and they haven't been messed with, you know, you're going to find all that stuff. It's still there. It's amazing. It's still there. All that stuff. You came into this world carrying only your birthday suit. You're going to leave the same way. Right? Now, the good news is you can send it on ahead. Can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Matthew 6, 20, Jesus said, In intelligent self-interest, in intelligent self-interest, Jesus said, Lay up for yourselves treasures and you go you're talking you're talking my language lay up for yourselves treasures the location of the treasures is everything where and why would you lay up treasures in heaven because it's permanent it's forever it's eternal right down here moth rust relatives, taxes, inflation. I mean, right? There's a lot of, lot of enemies of your wealth. When you get to heaven, that's the only safe place to put money, by the way, eternally. God's bank's never going to go broke, right? And you don't have a Federal Reserve to print monopoly money like they're doing now, I mean, right? Everything on this planet is at risk. Only that which is committed to Jesus is safe. Now, the good news is we know him and he knows us. And we have a place promised for us in heaven. Verse 17. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness and anger. This is Solomon as an old man, and he's pretty, he's pretty bitter right now about this. Verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be a good and fitting thing, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Here's the principle. Work itself is a gift from God. Work itself is a gift from God. Work is a blessing. It's a reward from God, and it was given to Adam before the fall. For sin, he had a job to do. Take care of the garden, right? Now, the word reward here means inheritance. It means a portion or an inheritance. So work is part of your inheritance. Have you ever noticed that the ability to enjoy God's gift is a gift itself? How many people do you know think that if they just get their hands on enough of these, happiness is automatic? Right? If I only get enough of this, then I will certainly be happy. How many of them that do that are happy? Pardon? Yeah, yeah, it's called the lottery. That's true. If you looked at the lives of the people that have won the lottery, most of them were far better off without the money. Without the money. Pre-winning the lottery, it's ruined most people's lives. It literally has. It's interesting... Um, that the ability to do the work 
to earn the wealth is a gift. And the ability to enjoy the wealth once you've earned it is also a gift. Neither one of them are automatic. Verse 19, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift from God. Now, I want you to look at that with respect to chapter 6, verse 2. Go to chapter 6, verse 2. Just pop over there. And he says, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires, but God has not empowered that man to eat from them. That means to enjoy them. So the principle is both the wealth, the capacity to earn the wealth, and the capacity to enjoy the wealth come from God. Right? It's interesting. The ability to enjoy the wealth does not come from the wealth. It comes from the giver of the wealth. Correct? Say yes. You, uh, the food that you're going to go eat in a few hours comes from? And your taste buds to enjoy the food come from? Interesting. How good would the food be if you didn't have the taste buds? So your ability, yes, K can tell you it's not good. Here's the point. You cannot truly enjoy the gifts God has given you apart from a proper relationship with God the giver. When we value God's gifts more than we value God himself, we now have an idol. And does idolatry satisfy? Have you ever noticed that addicts never enjoy their addiction? None of them. You know, God gifts us with work, with food, with money, with sex, with all these great gifts. And yet we can become addicted to work, addicted to sex, addicted to money, addicted to food and forget all about God the giver. When you forget God the giver, your ability to enjoy the gift is now destroyed. Now you're addicted to it. You must have it, whatever it is, other than God. Idolatry never satisfies. Never, never, never. Albert Schweitzer said, if you own something that you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. Might be useful, just go through your house. Is there anything in your house that you can't give away? Then you're not the owner, you're the object. Your lust has you enslaved to it. Stuff is easy. Stuff is real easy. What about relationships? What about attitudes? Now we're messing, you know. It's interesting. Money is, represents a lot of things. People go, well, I'm not in love with money. There's nothing between me and God and money. What about your children or your grandchildren? You love the Lord more than them? I can give you a clue about how to know that. When God starts moving in the life of your children and grandchildren, are you going to get out of the way and let him do what he wants to do in their life? God has a plan for your children and your grandchildren that's far better than your plan. Far bigger than your plan. But it may involve 
our children and grandchildren having to do business with God direct and it may be uncomfortable because for them to come to Christ, he may have to mess with their life. Yes? How many of you came to Christ at the point of some desperation? When there was need and you were bleeding and breaking? Yes? So why are you unwilling to let God bring your children or grandchildren to that point? I'm very convinced that some of us say, God, um, you're Lord, you know, but I own my kids. You do not own your kids. He blood-bought, paid for them, and created them. Open your hands up. You're not going to take it, you know. Give them back to the Lord. His plan's better than your plan. Pray for your grandkids. Some of you need to pray for your great-grandchildren. You won't even be here to see them, but those prayers will be here because God remembers. You praying for the spouses of your grandchildren. God remembers those prayers. Verse 20. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with his gladness of heart. Here's the principle. Gratitude for God's blessings enables us to neither regret the past nor fear the future. Gratitude for God's blessings enables us to neither regret the past nor fear the future. Okay, let's go through a summary quick. Casual worship can lead to casualties. Do not be casual in worship. Leviticus 10 and Acts 5. Prayer should be like perfume. Pay attention when you put it on or when you use it. Promise breaking is both stealing and lying. You owe your promises. All of them. The more we have, the more we want. This is in the flesh, by the way. You have the Spirit of God to moderate all of these. The more we tend to spend, the more we tend to worry, the more we tend to hoard, the more we tend to leave. Money is a tool. It's a means to an end. It's not the end. But it's a good barometer of your heart. How you handle your money is a very, very good barometer. Martin Luther said, you have to have the conversion of the heart, but you also have to have the conversion of the purse. And if the purse is not converted, the heart's not converted because now money's more important than God is. All right? Work itself is a gift from God, and the capacity to earn the wealth and enjoy the wealth are gifts from God. Here's what's interesting. Wealth itself will not bring you happiness. Wealth itself can bring you misery. A little challenge here for you. Try praying this week at least once. And only say thank you during that prayer. Let no word come out of your mouth other than thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, for this. Just thank him straight through for five, ten minutes and don't ask him for anything. And don't mention you. Thank him. The old song, Count Your Blessings. Gratitude will produce more joy in your heart than almost any other thing in your life. Practice saying thank you. Okay. Love you guys.